wonderful that God sends his rain. And it's wonderful that you weather it to get come out. <laughs> Here we pray for it. And some people say, well, uh, it's wet. I better not go out. No, no. Come out and give praise to the Lord. God's merciful, he said, to the just and the unjust. Right? Well, yeah, okay, that's good. He's, he's tall. We're going to let Jason uh, share the word with you. And after that, uh, we're going to uh, deal with some issues for the church and let you know that and take communion together. So, Jason, won't you come? What a cool pulpit. <laughs> this is the very word of the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. And as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, until they have watered the earth, making it blossom and bear fruit, and give seed for sowing and bread to eat. So shall the word which comes from my mouth prevail. It shall not return to me fruitless without accomplishing my purpose and succeeding in the task I gave it. Uh, we are no better than pots of earthenware to contain this treasure. And this proves that such transcendent power does not come from us, but is God's alone. But Scripture says, I believed, and therefore I speak out. And we too, in the same spirit of faith, believe, and therefore speak out. For we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus to life will with Jesus raise us too and bring us to his presence and you with us. Indeed, it is for your sake that all things are ordered so that as the abounding grace of God is shared by more and more, the greater may be the chorus of thanksgiving that ascends to the glory of God. Now I may speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but if I have no love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I may have the gift of prophecy and know every hidden truth. I may have faith strong enough to go on removing mountain after mountain, but if I have no love, I am nothing. I may dole out all I possess to the poor, or even give my body to be burnt that I might glory as a martyr. But if I have no love, I have not profited even one single thing. Love is patient, and love is kind, and envies no one. Love is never boastful, nor conceited, nor rude, never selfish, not quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs. It does not gloat over other men's sins, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith. It believes all things. There is no limit to its hope. It hopes all things. There is no limit to its endurance. It endures all things. Love will never come to an end. Uh, their prophets, their work will be over. Uh, their tongues, they will cease. As a knowledge, it will vanish away. For our prophecy and our knowledge are like a partial, and the partial vanishes when wholeness comes. When I was a child, my speech, my thought, my outlook were all childish. But when I'd grown up, I'd finished with childish things. Now we see only puzzling reflections in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. My knowledge now is partial. Then it will be whole, like God's knowledge of me. In a word, there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of them all is love. Pursue love. It is by this that we even know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we, in our turn, are bound 
to lay down our lives for our brethren. But if a man has enough to live on, and yet when he sees his brother in need, shuts up his heart against him, how can it be said that the divine love dwells in him? My children, love must not be a matter of words or talk. It must be genuine and show itself in action. Thus we may come to know that we belong to the realm of truth and can convince ourselves in his sight that even if our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our conscience and knows all. My dear friends, if our conscience does not condemn us, then we may approach God with confidence and obtain from him whatever we ask because we are keeping his commands and doing what he approves. And this is his command that we believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another as he commanded. When we keep his commands, we dwell in him, and he dwells in us, and this is how we can be sure that he dwells within us. We know it from the spirit he has given us. I'll just stop there and say good evening. I'm not quoting now, it's just me, okay? Um, <laughs> praise God. Those scriptures from Isaiah 55, 9 through 11, two places in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, 1a, 1 John 3, 16 to the end of the chapter, form the foundation for our little ministry. It's called Word Sower and Word Sower International. Uh, the Lord called my wife and I almost 40 years ago to speak the book of Revelation into the church in North America. Uh, we're commissioned to missionary evangelists to do that. That's what we do all the time church to church, for the edification, exhortation, consolation, and equipping of the church. We want you to be built up. We want you to be strengthened. We want you to be comforted in your fears. And we want you to be equipped for the work of service, which is the building up of the body of Christ. And we have given our life to it. It's a small life, but we've given it to it. And uh, now the Lord has added other books. A few years ago, you know, trying to, to go out to speak the word and we, we always have been convicted that we need to live out the word as best we can, right? I mean, I don't go tell you to love and not love. That's foolish. That's contradictory. And we were given the opportunity to become involved in the needs of orphans, widows, refugees, and street children. And so we started sponsoring a child. We heard about him. His name was Lightning, and, which is a great name for a nine-year-old boy, right? And he just looked skinny and hungry. And we had boys, and, and our hearts just went out to him, you know. He was wearing a, a, a Minnie Mouse pajama top, pink. And my, I was feeling sorry for his gender uh, identity, you know. But and, and so we started sponsoring him through an African church group. And then they invited us to come and, and speak at their annual conference in Liberia, West Africa. You all know where Liberia is? Really? All right, picture Africa in your mind. It's an ice cream cone falling off the left-hand side. Over here at the drip, that's Liberia, okay? And they had a terrible civil war, and we thought we knew about it. We thought we were informed. We thought we were doing pretty good. You know, we were sponsoring a child who was orphaned by that war. And so we told these Africans who wanted us to come, which meant we were given the privilege of paying our way there and back, and feeding ourselves while we were there, right? And paying somebody to do that, which sort of a works program for Liberia. And uh, so we decided we couldn't go. We said, I'm sorry, we're booked, you know, we can't go. And, and they said, well, Brother Nightingale, we've prayed about it, and we think you'll come. <laughs> so we went, and, um, and on the way, we thought, well, we get to meet Lightning. 
I mean, how often when you sponsor a child, you actually get to go see them where they live. And we went and we saw and we smelled and we tasted and we heard and we got wounded for the kids because they lived in terrible situations. They didn't have enough food. They were hungry. Their hair was turning orange, a sure sign of malnutrition. They all had malaria. The rats would come up at night because they were on the beach there. The rats would come up and eat the dry skin off them around their toenails, you know. Man, our hearts are going out. The boys were in these rooms up above where they were cooking and the smoke from the charcoal fire just sort of smoked them. So we decided we'd sponsor not only Lightning, but his older brother and older sister in the same home. We took on 800 kids. And, but the Africans were taking care of them. We just raising money, you know. A couple years later, I got invited to go back. I went back to speak at a conference. And for some reason, you, when you go to Africa and other places, you always have to take a road trip. And road is such a loose term, you know? Like I just went to Nepal with Gan. Road is a loose term. And uh, I went on this road trip, and we had to go... Uh, 300 kilometers from Monrovia to a place called Greenville. That's not far from Louisiana and not far from Maryland. And I'll tell you a little bit about the history of, of Liberia. And there were many massacres there. And we went down to speak at the conference all week. Well, we're in this car. It's an Isuzu trooper. And we're driving. And the, our driver was a nephew of Charles Taylor, who was the president of Liberia at that time. So we had no problems with the checkpoints because he was relative, related to the dictator. And you sort of go through, right? But we stopped for something. And the right front headlight assembly fell out. The whole thing, boom, on the ground. So he gets out, picks it up, brings it back, and puts it under the seat of the car. And I, I knew we were coming back at night. And I said, brother, you know, we're coming back at night. That has to be fixed. He said, no problem, which tells you a little bit about what no problem meant. And so we, uh, we get there, and we preach all week, morning, at, late morning, afternoon, night. I went with one of my son's father-in-law, who was my oldest granddaughter's other grandfather, and um, his name was Larry, and, uh, and they took us over to this house to feed us, and there's a little porch in the front. We're sitting on the pro porch in the wicker chairs that they make, which are really wonderful. And um, there's some kids playing in the pathway. A little girl that I thought was about three. Little boys about the same age. She had a little rag dress on, open down the front, her tummy kind of sticking out. And she, her eyes are milky, you know, and her hair was kind of turning orange. But she had a smile that would stop a truck, you know. And, and the boys were being real shy. But she wasn't. And she jumped up on the porch. She figured, those guys must be granddaddies. And I was new to the business. So she went up on Larry's lap and smiled at me and owned me. And, and then she looked at me a little again. And she thought, that guy, I bet, has candy. And so <laughs> she got down off Larry's lap and came over and got up on mine. And there's an international children's language. Do you know about it? Uh, one of the ways they communicate is by patting your pockets, and the phrase means, where's your candy, buddy? Okay? And so she starts packing my, patting my pockets, and I had these little chocolate mints that were uh, uh, sugar-free, you know, and I pulled one out, and I thought, oh, I wonder if she can handle the sweetness. I mean, how often do you get equal in, in southern Liberia and during the middle of the war, right? And, and then it dawned on me that she was going to die. 
and that I could not help her. That she had severe malaria, most probably, recurring all the time. Almost all the children have it. And it kills more people in Africa every year than does AIDS. She was suffering severe malnutrition. The tummy, big tummy on her is not enough food. On me, it's too much. Her hair turning orange, again, a sure sign of severe malnutrition. She probably would never learn to read or write, being a girl in that culture. She might live to 40. She will have numerous children from a variety of partners, and she will be mistreated by all the partners, beaten. She'll wash her clothes in a bucket, lay them out on the grass or the bushes to dry. She won't go to school, of course. She'll have two names. She'll have one that her husband and the community knows her by, and then she'll have her kitchen name because all the ladies have give each other nicknames in the kitchen there. And the kitchen, of course, is a coal pot. If the most terrible thing happens, she'll become a widow. Her children will tell her goodbye, and she'll walk down out of the village and die in the, in the jungle. She's not alone, you know. Millions of them are around, millions of young ladies being, being treated like that. So when we got done, I, we were flying out of Amsterdam. And, you know, out of Amsterdam, you're on a plane, everybody goes to Amsterdam at some point. Somebody says, where are you coming from? We said, Africa. They said, oh, what do you do there? I said, well, we feed some kids and, and take care of some widows. We were just starting our work there. And they said, oh, that must be very rewarding. You know, a lot of times I use that for an op, a, a beginning point for witness, but I was pretty cranky that night. And I said, no, it's not rewarding. It's really frustrating because most people don't care. You know, you do what you care about. And I got wounded in heart by that little girl. We were coming back from the conference. They picked us up at night on the last night. We had to drive all night to make the airport before we left. This is the night before the fighting spread to the whole country and Charles Taylor was evicted. So we were in, the, in this Jeep. The guy came to pick us up and the headlight was fixed. They had clear taped it in on the right side, but it wasn't focused, so it was shining over here. That's okay because the left one was over here. And that's okay because you couldn't hardly see through the windshield anyway. And they had put two barrels of diesel fuel in the back to pay for the rental for the vehicle for the week and the driver. And, but that was okay because they were all being held up by our luggage. Uh, and they had lids on it, but the thing just reeked of diesel. So I made Larry, they wanted me to sit shotgun. And I'm the best target, I guess. Anyway, so, and, and the window, the seat behind there, the window was jammed down. So I had Larry sit there so he could breathe. And, and then we had a, a security guard. Somebody had given him an AK-47, put a round in the chamber, cocked it, put the safety on, and said, if anything bad happens, push this, pull this, right? But they'd never let him shoot it because bullets are expensive. So I was a little disconcerted ex being ex-military, having a guy with a gun that didn't know how to use it, loaded. And so, but that was okay, because he proved out to be a real wimp. And so, then we had a guy in the middle of the back who I don't know who that was. But, and so, we were headed back to Monrovia, and we had to drive 40 miles an hour all night. And so, we're driving all night, and we come on a checkpoint about 3 o'clock in the morning. And, and, and there, there was no light on the checkpoint. They, they take these little oil lamps and put them on a shelf in the front of, like, a shack. 
uh, and, and they burn that. All the businesses do it at night in, in Africa. And, and this checkpoint was supposed to have a light. And it either gone out or they didn't care. They let it go out. And, and we got there. We didn't see the light. So we start to go by the checkpoint. And what was there was a speed bump about that high, more like a tank trap. And we hit that at 40 miles an hour with no warning. Boom, Duke's a hazard. All right? Well, going up is kind of fun. Yeah, it wakes you up, funny in the tummy, you know. But coming down, the Jeep comes down a lot faster than you come down, right? And wham! Man, I would buy these things because the axles didn't break. But anyway, right on the other side was a rope gate, which, of course, the headlights and the windshield, now he sees it. So he slams on the brake. We go through and destroy the rope gate. Well, all the soldiers that were tending that checkpoint, and you never knew who was going to be there, state police, uh, Liberian Army, they hadn't been paid in three years, so you didn't mind being there, giving them $5 to get through. Or it was Charles Taylor's anti-terrorism unit, which would shoot you if they didn't like you. And so we didn't know who was there, but now they are all awake. And they'd been laying around, and they had guns that they knew how to use. And they had cocked their guns, and they were pointing them all at us. And so our driver, who I would have encouraged to leave quickly, decided to get out and yell at them. Buddy, they're going to shoot us. They don't even know who the Dukes of Hazard are. They're challenged, you know. And so he starts yelling at them for not having a light. Well, they would rather argue than shoot. And so we had a nice argument going. Our security man, leaving his gun behind wisely, jumped out of the vehicle and joined the argument. We argued for a half an hour, paid $5 American, which I still think is excessive for their gate, and left alive. The next day, the, the rebels who had been telling everybody in the bars all week that they were going to come and kill them on that day started killing them on that day, and we were out. We got out the last plane out for a month out of Liberia. I only share that story to impress upon you how important a light is. Just, just a little light. People got killed going through that checkpoint over the next couple of weeks. Just a little light saves lives. In the jungle, when it's dark and the road goes like this, you don't see it very far, but it's amazing how much light it gives when there's no ambient light, no electricity. How important are you, light of the world? Light of the world. How important are you to those little girls? Let's hear the book of James talk for a moment. Uh, another story. I've been asked to tell you a story, so I'm going to tell you two. And then we'll do James, and that will do it. I w my wife and I started working in Haiti in 2008. We were invited to come down there. And you know what? We've been wounded for kids. Jesus took a kid in his arms, and he says, if you receive one such child as this in my name, you receive me. That's an astounding revelation. One. That's the will of God, brethren. So we started working in Haiti through a number of things that are too long to tell tonight. We started an orphan home, and it filled up with children. We prayed, and God provided another house, and that filled up with children. We prayed, and somebody provided money for us to go down there and rent two more houses to fill them, because we wouldn't turn anyone away. And so in 2000. 
that I, we started there in 2008, 2009, that money was given late in the year. 2010 in January, we were going to Germany, Sharon was going to Germany to visit our son and grandchildren there. Grandma was on her, her journey to Germany. And I was going to Wisconsin, which I don't know why she got Germany and I got Wisconsin, but anyway. So on the way, we thought we'd go to Haiti. You do that, don't you? Going to Germany, you go to Haiti on the way. So we, we, we got down to Haiti, and we had the money to rent houses, and we'd sent half of it down by bank wire. On the ground about four hours, and they had a little earthquake, if you heard about it. Within two miles of where we sat, 300,000 people died. Now, we were in a guest house owned by the Methodists. So my first thought was, I'm sorry I'm hanging with the liberals, God. You know, and, uh, <laughs> but our building didn't fall down because liberals build well. <laughs> building. All right. And so, well, we were under the overhang of a second floor like this, and we were staying upstairs. And when it started shaking, being from California and being experienced in, in earthquakes we thought we ought to get out of here because it we realized it was a good size one so we got up and went out and the table heavy round tables and chairs followed us and went into the swimming pool past us and we're standing on this stone pavement which turned out to be over a water cistern but we didn't know that and praise god it didn't collapse the building next to us was three stories at our end of the building it dropped two stories and the other end of the building went all the way to the ground the retaining walls all around us blew out like somebody had put uh, charges in them. And the, the uh, Haitians hadn't had an earthquake in 200 years. They didn't know what it was. They were screaming, what is it? What is it? You know, and people were dying and stuff. And, and so we started, being an ex-army medic, of course, you get involved in, in first aid. And we were involved in first aid. And Sharon was, was helping, standing there holding bags. And the house next to us, of course, there was a woman caught in it. Actually, four women died in that building. Uh, two trapped, one got out and died, and there was another woman there. And so uh, I went around to that building, and I went into the, the compound, and, and the building was all down on the ground. And I, and I went around the edge, and there's a turkey sitting there. And I thought, man, you're lucky. You're going to live. And, uh, and then I went around, and there was a doorway going into the house. And I went in the doorway, and there were rooms there. So I started checking the rooms. But the top floor had fallen down too, so the stairway there just went up to the ceiling. There was just a floor there now. And two women died above that, and at the end of the hallway, it was all on the ground, and there was a woman in there crying for help, and a couple of Haitians had gone in ahead of me. I thought, man, i got, got to follow them. And I get in that building. Now, I've raised around a firehouse. My dad was a fire chief. I fought fire. I've been a medic and e uh, uh, emergency medical tech here, and, and I, all of a sudden dawned on me, what am I doing in this building? I mean, an aftershock would just maybe drop the rest of the building. If my wife knew I was here, I'd be in trouble, you know? Because I'm not a brave man. And I'm thinking, I could die in here. And I had a moment, and maybe you've had it. I said, and it had to be the Holy Spirit. I said, you know what? Haitians are worth dying for. I could die here, it's okay. And I never thought that before, that I knew. I could die for somebody. Now I've, I've run to help somebody where they were being shot at by mortars and stuff, and I've been shot at and heard a mortar round right here, which is really too close to your head to be safe. And, and I've been shot at, and I did that whole thing in Liberia, and we've been through all kinds of stuff. But it just suddenly dawned on me. 
I could die for these people. Have you ever had that moment? Because with it comes the realization from God that he can raise you from the dead. You can love somebody enough to die for them. As a matter of fact, you must. And God can raise you from the dead. Have you ever had that moment? Maybe you've had it for this church as a pastor. Maybe you've had it for your brethren in Christ, your children maybe. I could die for that person. I could die for that cause, the cause of Christ. I could die for this nation. I could die for the children because it doesn't matter. God can raise from the dead. Let's go to James. James, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the world. My brethren, whenever you have to face trials of many kinds, count yourself extremely blessed in the knowledge that such testing of your faith breeds endurance, and if you give endurance full play, you will be complete, lacking nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God for it and will be given him. For God is a generous giver who neither refuses nor reproaches anyone. Only let him ask in faith without a doubt in his mind. For the doubter is like a heaving sea ruffled by the wind. A man of that kind must not expect the Lord to give him anything. He is double-minded and never can keep a steady course. The brother in humble circumstances may well be proud that God lifts him up. While the wealthy brother must find his pride in being brought low. For the rich man will wither away like the flowers of the field. Once the sun is up with its scorching heat, the flower withers and the petals fall. And what was once lovely to look at is lost forever. So shall the rich man disappear as he goes about his business. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial for having passed that test. He shall receive for his prize the gift of life promised to those who love God. No one under trial or temptation should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is untouched by evil and does not himself tempt anyone. Temptation arises when a man is enticed and lured away by his own lust, and then lust conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin, full grown, breeds death. Make no mistake, my friends, all good giving, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of the lights of heaven. With him there is no variation, no play of passing shadows of his set purpose. By declaring the truth, he gave us birth to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of that you may be certain, my friends. Only let each of you be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be angry, for a man's anger cannot promote the righteousness of God. Well, away then with all that is sordid and the malice that hurries to excess and quietly accept the message planted in your hearts which can bring you salvation. Only be certain that you act upon the message and do not merely listen, for that would be to mislead yourself. The man who listens to the message but never acts upon it is like one who looks in a mirror at the face God gave him. He glances at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. But the man who looks closely into the perfect law, the law that makes us free, and dwells in his company, does not forget what he hears but acts upon it, and that is the man who by acting will be blessed. Now, a man may think that he's religious, but if he cannot control his tongue, he is deceiving himself. That man's religion is futile. The religion that is without stain or fault in the sight of God our Father is this, to go to the aid of orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself untarnished by the world. My brethren, believing as you do in our Lord Jesus Christ who reigns in glory, you must never show partiality 
For example, two visitors may enter your place of worship, one a, a well-dressed man with gold rings, the other a poor man in shabby clothes. Suppose you pay special attention to the well-dressed man and say to him, please, sit here. While to the poor man you say, you can stand or you may sit here on the floor next to my footstool. Do you not see that you are being inconsistent and judged by false standards? Listen, my friends, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor man. Moreover, are not the rich your oppressors? Is it not they who drag you into court and pour contempt upon the honored name by which God hath claimed you? If, however, you are observing the sovereign law laid down in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, that is excellent. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and stand convicted by that law as transgressors. For if a man keeps the whole law apart from one single point, he is guilty of breaking all of it. For the one who said, thou shalt not commit adultery, said also, thou shalt not commit murder. Now, you may not be an adulterer, but if you commit murder, you're a lawbreaker all the same. Always speak and act as men who are to be judged under a law of freedom. In that judgment, there will be no mercy for the man who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, my brethren. What is the use of it for man to say he has faith if he does nothing to show it? Can that faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister's in rags with not enough food for the day, and one of you says to him, good luck to you, keep warm and have plenty to eat, but does nothing to satisfy their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So with faith, if it does not lead to action, is in itself a lifeless thing. But someone may object. Here is a man who claims to have faith, and another who points to his deeds, to which I reply, prove to me that this faith you speak of is real, though not accompanied by deeds, and by my deeds I will prove to you my faith. You have faith enough to believe that there is one God? Excellent. The devils have faith like that, and it makes them tremble. But do you not see, you quibblers, that faith divorced from deeds is barren? Was it not by his actions in offering his son Isaac upon the altar that our father Abraham was justified? Surely you can see that faith was at work in his actions and that by these actions the integrity of his faith was fully proved. Here we find fulfillment of the words of Scripture. Abraham put his faith in God and that faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And elsewhere he is called God's friend. So you see that a man is justified by deeds and not by faith in itself. The same is true of the prostitute Rahab also. Was she not justified by her actions in welcoming the messengers into her house and sending them away by a different route? As the body is dead, when there is no breath left in it, so faith, divorced from deeds, is lifeless as a corpse. My brethren, not many of you should become teachers, for you may be certain that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness all of us often go wrong. The man who never says a wrong thing is a perfect character, able to bridle his whole being. If we put bits in horses' mouths to make them obey our will, we can direct their entire bodies. Or think of ships, large they may be, yet even when driven by a strong gale, they can be directed by a tiny rudder on whatever course the helmsman chooses. So with the tongue, it is a small member, yet able to make huge claims. 
when an immense stack of timber can be set ablaze by the tiniest spark. And the tongue is an effect of fire. It represents the world in our members and it pollutes our entire being. It keeps the wheel of our existence red hot and its flames are fed by hell. Birds and beasts of every kind, creatures that crawl on the earth and swim in the sea, all can be subdued and have been subdued by mankind. But no man can subdue the tongue. It is an intractable evil and charged with deadly venom. With it we sing praises to our Lord and Father, and with it we invoke curses upon our fellow men who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouths come praises and curses. My brethren, this should not be so. Does a fountain gush forth with both fresh and brackish water out of the same opening? Does a fig tree, my brethren, deal olives or a vine figs? No more does a salt spring yield fresh water. Who is wise or clever among you? Let his right conduct give practical proof of it with the modesty that comes from wisdom. But if you are harboring bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, consider whether your claims are not false in a defiance of the truth. For this is not the wisdom that comes from above, it is earthbound, sensual, and demonic. For with jealousy and ambition come evil and disorder of every kind. But the wisdom that comes from above is in the first place pure and peace-loving, considerate and open to reason. It is straightforward, sincere, rich in mercy and the kindly deeds which are its fruit. True righteousness is the harvest reaped by peacemakers, from seeds sown in a spirit of peace. What causes conflicts and quarrels among you? Do they not arise from the aggressiveness of your bodily desires? You want something that you cannot have, and so you're bent on murder. You're envious and cannot attain your ambition, and so you quarrel and fight. You don't get what you want because you don't pray for it. Or if you do, your requests are not granted because you pray from wrong motives to spend what you get on your bodily pleasures. You false, unfaithful creatures! Have you never learned that love for the world is enmity to God? He who chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you think that Scripture has no meaning when it says that the spirit God implanted in man turns towards envious desires, but the grace he gives is stronger? And therefore, Scripture says, God opposes the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. Be submissive then to God. Stand up to the devil and he will turn and run. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Sinners, make your hands clean. You who are double-minded, see through it that your motives are pure. Be sorrowful, weep and mourn. Turn your laughter into mourning and your gaiety into gloom. Humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you high. Amen. My brethren, you must never disparage one another. He who disparages a brother or judges a brother disparages the law and judges the law. And if you are judging the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment upon it. And there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save life and destroy it. So who are you to judge your neighbor? A word then with you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go off to such and such a town and spend a year there trading and making money. Yet you have no idea what tomorrow may bring. Your life, what is it? You are no more than a mist, seen for a little while and then dispersing. What you ought to say is, if it be the Lord's will, we shall live to do this or that. But instead you boast and brag, and all such boasting is wrong. Well, then the man who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, he is a sinner. Next, a word with you who have great possessions. Weep 
and wail over the miserable fate descending upon you. Your riches have rotted, your fine clothes are moth-eaten, your silver and gold have rusted away, and their very rust will stand as evidence against you and consume your flesh like fire. You have piled up wealth in an age that is near its close. The wages you never paid to the men who mowed your field are loud against you, and the outcry of the reapers has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in want and luxury, fattening yourselves like cattle for the day of slaughter, and the day for slaughter has come. You've condemned the innocent man and murdered him. He offers no resistance. Be patient, my brethren, until the Lord comes. The farmer looking for the precious crop his land may yield can only wait with patience until the autumn and spring rains have fallen. So you too must be patient and stout-hearted for the coming of the Lord is near. And do not blame your troubles on one another. You will fall under judgment. And look, there stands the judge at the door. If you're looking for a pattern of patience under ill treatment, consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Remember, we count those blessed who stood firm. You have all heard how Job stood firm. You have seen how the Lord treated him in the end. For the Lord is full of pity and compassion. Above all things, my brethren, do not use oaths, whether by heaven or by earth, or by anything else. If you want to say yes or no, let it be plain yes or no for fear lest you expose yourself to judgment. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him turn to prayer. Is anyone among you of good heart? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you ill? He should send for the elders of the congregation to come and pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus. For the prayer offered in faith will save the sick man. The Lord will raise him from his bed and any sins he may have committed will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, and you will be healed. The prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Elijah was a man with human frailties like our own, yet when he prayed earnestly that there should be no rain in the land, not a single drop fell for three years and a half. He prayed again, and down came the rain, and the land bore crops once more. My brethren, if one of your numbers should stray from the truth and another succeed in bringing him back, you may be certain of this. Anyone who brings a sinner back from his crooked ways will be rescuing his soul from death and canceling innumerable sins. And so ends the letter of James. Listen, listen, please. Praise God. God needs us to hand. Yeah, amen. There are 147 million orphans in the world, brethren. There's another 200 to 300 million children indentured or enslaved. What are you doing about it? Those are God's children. He says, I am the father of the fatherless. What are we doing about it? We have a little work called Word Sower. Please look us up on the web, wordsower.org, and, and pray for us as God leads you to pray for us. We don't work without that prayer. God has spoken to you. He's washed you with the water, the hearing of the word. You have no excuse. God calls you to act in faith like Abraham acted in faith when he put his heir on an altar, when he took a knife in his hand to slit his throat. A boy who was living a boy who was the answer to a mighty prophecy of God. He had him by the chin. He's looking at him. He was alive. And he had a knife in his throat. Just a flick of the wrist, he'd have been dead. 
And God stopped him and showed him a substitute, a beautiful picture of Jesus as a substitute. But Abraham had to face that moment where he had to come to the realization that God could raise from the dead. So he could purpose to even do what he thought God was telling him to do, kill that child. He had that moment, can I do this? Yeah, because God can rise from the dead. You can do whatever God's calling you to do. We just sang about his power tonight. You can do what God's calling you to do for the orphan, for the widow, for the refugee, for the oppressed, for the indentured, for the enslaved. You can do it. You can do it. Because God has the power to raise from the dead. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being in this pulpit and speaking it to these people. I pray that you go back in their remembrance, that you would cleanse out of what was me, and that you would call these people to steps of faith to change the world, to bring all the children under the, your mighty wings, God, to feed them and clothe them and house them and teach them about Jesus, to give them a hope, to keep them from being abused and maltreated and abandoned. Oh, God, in Jesus' name.